Bring your class to AFL Max this term. With a range of curriculum-aligned education programs to choose from, focus on health, well-being, and positive education. Or just book them in to have some fun together. Learn more at aflmax.com.au. Hi, listeners. Pods here. Welcome back to Max Mentors, the show that connects grassroots coaches to people that have got professional experience. This is episode four. Now, if you listen to some of our Max Mentors podcasts already or been a part of our live webinars, Max Mentors is all about giving our community and aspiring coaches an insight into what different coaches at the elite level have done or do currently and how that can be applied to grassroots football. We know that a coach is the most influential person in any player's sporting life, junior or senior. So hopefully some of the learnings that you're getting from our mentors, you're actually applying to your coaching and hopefully it's taking you to the next level. Now, personally, I just want to thank everyone for reaching out and giving us some feedback and some ideas on future episodes. Keep it coming because we're loving it. Let's get on with episode four. Our guest today is David Rath, the current head of football program at the St. Kilda Football Club. Rathy has been part of elite sport for over 25 years and in his early days, it saw him work in biomechanics at the AIS in the lead up to the 2000 Sydney Olympics. He worked across various Olympic sports over that time and then was handpicked by Alistair Clarkson and became an assistant coach at Hawthorne in the mid-2000s. During those years, it was virtually unheard of that an assistant coach hadn't played any AFL football and worked in a football department. I think Rathi might have been one of the first. We'll get to his Hawthorne days during our chat, but we all know that Hawthorne went on to win four premierships during that time. And Rathi now is a life member of the club. What a fantastic achievement. He then spent two years at the AFL as Head of Coaching Innovation before being pulled back to Clubland, where he now resides at St Kilda. One of his nicknames around the traps of AFL is the Guru, and Arathi absolutely hates it. But there's probably a reason for it. In my time, I'm yet to meet a more knowledgeable and humbler person that has a true passion for helping athletes and coaches get better. By the end of our chat, I have no doubt you will see that having a growth mindset and playing the infinite game is the way forward for leaders. And I know that Rathi is definitely one of those. There is coaching gems here at Max Mentors. So get your notepads ready and let's press play on our chat with David Rath. A bit of an intro for those of you that have joined us that don't know who David Rath is. If you do a Wikipedia search, he's actually a Czech politician that's been in jail. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is quite interesting, Rathi. So when I found that, I thought I didn't know that about you. But um, <laughs> in all honesty, there's not much not much about you um, when you do a Google search. But, um, you know, I've known you for, you know, two or three years now and, um, you know, loved working with you in my time at the AFL. We'll get to that um, a little bit later. But a bit of a background. Kid from the country, country Vic, um, Castlemaine and Neil. Uh, so your junior sort of school or primary school, you're Neil. Um, older school, secondary school, you're in Castle, Maine. Um, I want to jump straight into the AIS where you spent nine years and I, you finished up there, what was it, 2005? Is that right? End of 2004. Yeah. 2004, yeah. So you started at Hawks at 2005, but nine years there, um, biomechanics, um, you were one of the, um, the people that were, you know, really leading the charge in this space in Australia on motion analysis at the time. Um, you worked, you know, within the, you know, building up to the Sydney Olympics, you know, in rowing, swimming and a whole lot of Olympic sports. I remember you and I, um, you know, travel around Australia uh, a couple of years ago. We went to the um, Olympic Village in Sydney and you remembered, you know, I remember you telling me some stories on, on the Olympics and that we probably won't get them, them tonight. But, you know, that was a part of your, your career and your journey, the IAS. And then you went to Hawthorne 
Um, it was probably Clarko's masterstroke because, and a, and a bit of a, a point at the time where he actually appointed you as a coach with no coaching background. Um, you know, obviously you had a, a you know, I don't know whether it was a job interview, mate, or he, he sort of, <laughs> you um, you met him around the traps. But um, 13 years at Hawthorne, uh, you were part of four premierships uh, in that time and, and really part of a, a, I suppose, a coaching staff that was um, always looking at getting ahead of where the game was at. Um, and some of the stuff that we see in the game now was, was really developed by um, you, Clarko, and that coaching staff at the time. So looking forward to hearing maybe, maybe some of that. Um, you then got poached to the um, AFL, where that's where I met you. We worked for two years there, head of coaching innovation. You're also part of the game analysis team um, in that period of time. And then now, you know, uh, your first year back in clubland as head of football program at the state. So, mate, it's been a, a, an awesome journey. I'm looking forward to sort of hearing some of your, um, your stories across that time. Um, but for everyone that's joining us tonight, um, that's Rathi's journey. Family-wise, um, married to Lee, daughter Ashley, uh, James and Lockie. So Ashley's 22, um, James is 17, and Lockie's 15. So um, you're actually quite old, mate, but you still look younger than me, which is interesting. <laughs> but that's not that's not hard with most people. Um, okay there, James. <laughs> but uh, Rathi, uh, fantastic background, um, and thanks for joining again. Let's get started. Uh, into this straight away. I've got a couple of, I've got a, a list of questions here. We probably won't get through all of them, but uh, over the course of the night, anyone that wants to um, ask any questions, just chuck it in the, um, in the chat and we'll, uh, we'll try and get to it if we, if we haven't asked it already. And then uh, this also will be a recording. We'll put out on a podcast too. So if you know friends and family that have missed out, uh, it'll come out um, in a week or so time. So mate, um, junior days playing footy. I want to start here as a kid. Did you play footy? And yeah, I did. Yeah. Yep. Um, and why was played, it footy? Played footy, played cricket, played golf, played a little bit of tennis, played the main sports that a country kid, um, you know, growing up in Victoria played. Um, probably footy is probably the one that, you know, I got the most out of uh, in terms of, um, you know, the, you, you know, you put into a game and you get out of, you know, different things out of different sports, but footy was the one that gave me the most as a sport. Yep. Um, not in terms of being a great footballer myself. I was a, you know, fair average country footy player. Or, um, you know, junior footballer, I was I was okay. And then, you know, senior football, was fortunate enough to play in a premiership with Castlemaine um, in 1992. And that was a highlight of my my football career. Um, yeah. I didn't, you know, didn't go on any great heights. But the thing about footy that I loved, I think, was a couple of things. One, it's that sense of, um, you know, a little bit of the mastery thing again and that sense of self-esteem that it gives you from actually getting involved and, you know, and growing as a person through your involvement. Um, yeah. And the other thing was just this amazing sense of community and connection that I was really fortunate to have uh, in Castlemaine. We had a really tight group of group of mates and there was probably about, you know, probably a little bit um, unusually, there was probably about 15 or 20 of us. There was nearly, you know, nearly a footy club of mates um, that were really tight uh, through from 16 through to, you know, 25, I reckon. Um, and that social connection and the connection to the fabric of the community was amazing. And, you know, I still look back now and I look at, when we achieved success uh, in Castlemaine in 1992, it may sound weird, but there are parallels between that and what we achieved at Hawthorne when we had success there in terms of the whole of club, you know, by yeah, right. even at community yeah. level, 
that what it takes to get a sporting club to to really hum is people involved in virtually, you know, in, in every level and every role, really engaged and on the same path. Um, and that's something obviously Clarko is is renowned for, being able to set a vision and, you know, say we're going this way and the whole club's going this way and everyone got to get on board. But you can do that at community footy as well. And there was this real sense of, um, I remember really clear as a day that when we were successful, it was almost like this footy club, this community footy club, um, was you know got all these players back to play together, but it was the off-field staff as well. We had really good people in the, you know, in the committee driving yep. that football club forward and improving facilities, you know, putting on, you know, you know, bigger and better dinners for players and, you know, engaging um, the whole broader Castlemaine community. So um, I think that connection piece is probably the main, you know, the main thing we get out of sport. Yeah, great. Um, thanks for that answer, mate. Uh, I asked this question to you know, all I guess so far, but what made you happy when you played footy? And, and the reason I ask that is um, with the scrutiny on the AFL game um, that we see, and it's growing every year, as you would you would see, it is it is a game. So we do play it initially as a game for enjoyment. So what made you happy when you when you did play? Yeah, I think the words you've just used are the key ones, mate. And this is something I you know believe firmly in that it is a game and it is played. Um, yeah, and this sense of play is fundamental to our enjoyment. Um, yeah, and that you know we can, as a professional sport, especially the AFL, we can get beyond that um, and beyond the the fact that that play is a creative process, um, and that it's about the players exploring. And I think that's that's what's fun about footy uh, when you think about it. It's exploring what you can do as a person, but what you can co-create with others as well as a team. Yeah, um, and I think that that sense of sense of play is, is why we all get involved in, you know, sometimes it's role play. It's it's about, you know, mimicking your favourite footballer. Um, other times it's about trying to do different things. I mean, I, you know, great memories of just kicking footies and trying to do different things and, you know, shaping balls through trees and, you know, having fun with footies and, you know, trying to do different things. I sort of, as a kid growing up, the main reason I actually got involved in biomechanics as a sort of sideline was because I just wanted to work out how you did things. You know, I, I couldn't bowl the ball fast, but I wanted to work out how you did it. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you hit a golf ball? I wanted to work out how you did that better. How do you kick a footy further? You know, that sense of play and, and creativity and trying to work things out, I reckon that was that was what I loved about it. Yeah, great. Let's let's flow into that. So talk to me about um, biomechanics. Um, obviously, finished school, went into, I'm assuming, like a human movement exercise science path and, and then got into the AS. How did that all come about? Yeah, I suppose that sort of, um, you know, that passion um, for, you know, understanding and, and working things out was always there around sport. I didn't go straight into that, though. I did a couple of years of a business degree and that didn't wasn't didn't really tick my boxes. So I went back home and worked for a few years and worked out what I wanted to do. So it wasn't, it wasn't something that I'd sort of rolled straight into and said, this is where I want to go. I actually wasn't really aware of that as an opportunity. Um, for quite some time and then, you know, um, was fortunate enough to get steered in the right direction um, and get involved and get, get an understanding that were human movement courses and that biomechanics was an actual discipline. And I thought, shit, this is, excuse the language, this is something that really interests me um, and was lucky enough to get in as a mature-age student uh, and then had a real crack at that and um, knuckled down and worked hard and got a post-grad scholarship to the AIS um, where they offered a postgrad scholarship in biomechanics and I was fortunate enough to get that. Uh, and then when that finished, there was a job came up and I was in the right place at the right time 
um, and yeah, and and went from there, I suppose. And that was the yeah. entry into biomechanics. Great. And let's fast forward into the the Hawthorne years. I think that um, I look back at all your sort of titles that you've had um, in in football. None of them's ever been like a coach, has it? But you you are you are a coach. Um, and yeah, you- I suppose the closest I got, mate, was the to being called a coach. I actually was an assistant coach in my first year. First few years, yeah. it was the first year, um, and that was really bold moved by Clarko um, to appoint someone without a, you know, an AFL playing background. In those days, it was very rare for, um, you know, someone in the AFL coaching roster to not have played 200 games of AFL footy um, or thereabouts. Um, it's a little bit more um, frequent now. But, you know, I had not I had no background in football apart from, you know, Castlemaine, you know, <laughs> football. 1992. Yeah. 1992, that was what I had <laughs> Um, but I'd done some work in kicking and while I was at the AIS, I started doing some work on the biomechanics of kicking because that was that, you know, question I'd had. And one of those three questions, how do you bowl faster? How do you hit a golf ball better? How do you kick a footy further? Um, yeah. You know, I'd been, I'd been trying to solve those ones and the, and the footy one was, was something I tried to get a handle on for quite a while with the AIS AFL squad, did some work with them. Um, so young players like Alan Didak were coming through this squad and Didak was obviously a beautiful kick. So we started using our biomechanics technology um, to try and understand what it was about him that made him a great kick. And we started to quantify and capture the motion that underpinned these, these good kicks. Uh, and so through that process, I started to do some coach education on kicking biomechanics. And at one of those courses in the early 2000s, Clarko was there uh, while he was coaching at Port Adelaide. And yep. I met him um, and turned out, coincidentally, I uh, went to school with his wife. Um, Clarko grew up in the small town of, of Caniva, which was the next town to Nil, which is the time yep. I, town I spent my childhood life in. So there was a bit of a connection there. Um, and then I think it was only a year or so later when he got appointed, um, he rang me and uh, and it was the, the strangest phone call I'd ever had. I, you know, someone came <laughs> up to offer me a job as an AFL assistant coach and I'm on the phone looking at my wife and saying, he's giving me off me a job. And, you know, <laughs> Lee was eight months pregnant at the time with Lockie, our second kid, and um, oh, yeah. we made a momentous decision to, to up stumps from a really stable, um, you know, career as a sports science um, biomechanist uh, to yeah. come down to Melbourne. And it was, a you know, a bit of a chance, but it's, it's been a really, a really good decision. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about um, why coaching, because you've obviously gone from that sort of scientific analytics background in, in biomechanics mm-hmm. into, you know, because coaching is completely different to, to, to that, as we, as we all know. So why coaching and what is it that you love about um, coaching? Yeah, and I reckon this is sort of um, the, my biggest learnings, you know, about this, mate, is that I came from a, a scientific discipline called biomechanics. Yep where we try and reduce everything and, and we try to identify a perfect model. Um, and so we were saying, well, if I can find out what makes Alan Didak kick as a scientist, I can copy that model and clone that model and teach other players to do that. And then, and then if I've done that, I wash my hands of it, I fixed their kicking. Um, and when I got to Hawthorne, I tried to apply that model. Even though I was appointed as a coach, I was applying that copy the expert model to getting turning people into better kicks. And um, and I remember doing some work with a number of players, but one that really sticks in my, my mind was Ruffy. 
And yeah. Ruff had this really, you know, idiosyncratic technique where he waved his opposite arm above his head in this little lasso and was kind of off balance and wonky, um, especially when he was younger. He, he refined it as he got older. Um, but he didn't tick any of the boxes for what I had in my mind as the model kick. And so I started working on him and trying to, you know, force him into this didact model. And um, I've got some video of this and it was, I, can make, I could make him do it. And I had him kicking like didact pretty quickly. Um, and so I just said, tick, fantastic. And then thought my job was done. And then you put him back into the game and what happens? Of course, he regresses back to how he wants to move because he's got, you know, certain um, fundamental um, movement patterns that drive his motion. And if you look at the way Ruff moves, he sways from side to side when he walks and he uses that to drive his kicking. Yet I was trying to force him to kick a different way because that was the way I thought. I was the expert. I had all the answers. And so this model of a scientist, um, you know, reducing everything to, you know, expert techniques and models of performance, I was really challenged in thinking that way. And so I had to rethink um, what it was about expertise and, and what were the broader questions of how we, act, how we had to improve someone's kicking performance, not their technique, and their skill, not their technique. And so I started looking at, well, there's a lot of guys who are good kicks technically, um, but you put them into a game and they're not great kicks. And so that didn't make sense to me because I can look at his technique and say, this guy, he's a beautiful, he, he kicks really well in training, but I put him into a game. And it's not. And that started triggering some light bulbs and started to really understand that you can't pull apart kicking and decision-making and that the two go hand in hand. And when you talk about skill, um, and we're digressing a little bit here, mate, but, you know, I think historically when we, when we think of skill, we think of skill equaling technique. But I think it's a lot broader than that. And that's a really narrow definition that, that, that technique alone defines skill because it's not true. Um, there's not one common technique um, for most sports and there's subtle variations. And if you look at a lot of the Olympic sports now, they're doing studies and they're finding incredible individual variation between gold medals, medalists, silver medalists and bronze medalists at Olympic level, at the highest level. They all do things slightly differently or a lot of them do. We look at golf. We've got guys like Bubba Watson, you know, um, yeah. you know, who swing the club really differently. And there's a whole, you know, they're becoming more common, these guys with different swings who are actually achieving success and the, the perfect model idea has really been challenged. So I think if we talk about skill, we've got to use a broader definition to say skill equals technique plus adaptability under pressure. And so if we think of that definition and how we train, it's really different. So if we just think the tech, if it's, if we're just training skill equals technique, we just repeat the same thing over and over and over and over again. And we're trying to ingrain this one movement pattern. But if we think skill equals technique plus adaptability, well, then we realise that skillful people can change their technique to different demands of the game. And then if we put the pressure bit into it, we realise that the pressure is the environment and that actually tells them what to do. And that's why, um, you know, this big push towards game-based training is so important, that if we put people in game situations, the information is there that drives their skill. And if we don't, we can train people with good techniques but not skill because they can't adapt to the environment and make their, make their skill um, work in the game. Yeah. And this is going beautifully. You just answered the next three questions I had in that, uh, in that one. Sam. My <laughs> next question was about can you define skill and, oh, there you go. and techni yeah, technique plus adaptability under pressure is, um, is pretty clear. That's fascinating, mate. And how, so just in that, um, 
in that time, how long, how many years did it sort of take you to um, adjust and adapt and, and sort of, there would have been a time where, um, you know, you've come from AIS, which is, you know, this elite organization into the AFL and you would have been known as an expert and there would have been, you don't have an ego, but there's probably this time where you just have park your ego and go, I've got to change the way I go about it. How long did that sort of take you to, to grasp and, and adapt? Yeah. I think it was, um, it was reasonably sudden, mate, because it was a little bit yeah. sink or swim. Uh, yeah. Okay. You know, and I did have this idea that, um, you know, you, you think you're a bit of an expert in a domain and I'm, you know, sort of 15, 16, 17 years on from that, I'm now really wary of people who call themselves experts. Yeah, I am too because of you, by the way. <laughs> because, <laughs> I think, you know, it's it's knowing what you don't know is, is so important. Um, and that if we have this this idea that I'm a technical expert in this and, I'm you know, I'm, I'm going to fix this up and I'm going to go and send this person to a guru in this and they, you know, it just doesn't line up because no one has all those answers. And to me, um, the athlete is at, is at the centre of everything uh, and coaches don't have the answers. Um, what they've got to do is provide, create environments that ask the right questions of the players or their athletes when the players are ready. Yeah. Um, that's the skill and the challenge of coaching, I think, is to know how to do that um, and not think you've got all the answers because the, our game is so complex and so messy. Um, and that's one of the things that really struck me that you get into an AFL coaching box and you know, there's, this, there's this illusion of control that we think that these great coaches that are actually pulling the strings and making the game work. It's so messy. Yeah. And there's such, you know, such a, uh, you know, not a really clear line of sight between what happens in the coach's box and what actually goes on in the, out of the game. The game has a mind of its own. Um, and it's a battle of wills between two teams and, you know, different tactics and um, a, a really a lot of layers of complexity that's um, it's too hard to capture um, to think that one person has all the answers. Yeah, and which, which you know, I don't read a lot of media, but when the media go after a certain coach to try and, um, as if he's the reason why the side's form is poor or whatever, it's just so um, narrow, isn't it, when you, when you think about, you know, you work at a football, you, you've worked at a football club for a long time that there's so many layers to to performance and uh, and to get players to, you know, all sort of sing, singing from the one hymn book is is not just the one person. So I uh, I hear you there. Hey, uh, mate, I just want to, we, we, we've titled this um, The History of Coaching and I want to get to that because I know you've done a, a, you know, a mountain of work in that space uh, and I've seen um, your, your history of coaching presentation a number of times, um, which is fantastic. And we'll get to that. But I just want to talk to, we've got a lot of mums and dads um, that listen and, and, and join in tonight. But um, how do you think, you know, you're a fantastic dad to three kids. How do you think um, being a dad has helped um, your coaching or in the way that you support your coaches? And have you seen any of the coaches you've worked with um, and how they've sort of learnt from parenting? Yeah, I don't think they're that dissimilar. Um, coaching and parenting and, and, you know, if you get to coach your own children, then, you know, that's another dynamic which is really interesting. I've coached James. Um, I haven't coached Lockie as much, but I definitely coached James a fair bit of his footy. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it is, again, it's, it's one of the fundamentals of coaching is relationships. Um, and I think if you look at how coaching has changed and, you know, if we, if we, if we go back and think of, you know, 
30 years ago, our preconceptions of coaching, which the fire and brimstone speeches and the motivating and the rah, rah, rah. Um, and we probably think of parenting or fatherhood in a similar way um, in those times. And it was a lot about discipline and a lot about, you know, telling and, and this is the way to go. And I think now we, how we think of coaching and how we think of being a father are really removed from that. Um, and so, you know, there's real similarities between the two disciplines and they are intertwined. It's, it starts with the relationship, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And, you know, knowing, you know, what strings to pull at different times. And sometimes you have to, as a coach, sometimes there's no doubt you have to be firm and, and, you know, be direct. And there's other times when you, you've got to cuddle and you've got to take the kids with you. And, and that's more of the time I think these days. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's so much like being a parent, I think. Yeah, the challenge support matrix. Just before we go into this, uh, the first question on history of coaching. There's a good question here. And when you did, when you first came to Hawthorne, were any of the Hawthorne players? Did, did you get any pushback because you didn't have a AFL background? Um, yeah, I see. That's a Craig Simpson. I know a Craig Simpson from a long time ago. I wonder if it's the same one. Um, <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. Look, I didn't um, didn't really sense it. I think perhaps because I didn't try and be that. Ex-AFL player. I didn't try and coach from that space. Yeah. I, I was because I suppose I had a more scientific lens. I was being quite objective in trying to understand the game from a different place. So I wasn't pretending to have knowledge. In fact, I went into it um, and tried not to pick up on those preconceptions and tried to, um, you know, tried to learn how I could understand the game because I didn't think the current methods of actually describing the game were very good coming yep. from a scientific background. The stats didn't define or describe the game. Um, so I went around, you know, tried to find a different way of doing that in terms of understanding the chains of possession and sort of tried, started mapping the game out with a different scheme. And I think that model um, and looking at pulling the game apart from different ways perhaps brought me a little bit of credibility because um, it was a different approach. You know, there were times where I was out of my depth. I remember one of the first games, at practice game at Princess Park, um, and we were playing Carlton in, you know, what was I think the NAB Cup in those days, and Croft was um, playing in the forward line and I was, I'd was i been tasked with the, the role of coaching the forwards in that day. Um, oh, prima dominas, this is great. Yeah, I knew nothing about it. <laughs> and Croft got <laughs> a quarter time and he goes, Rathy, Rathy, isolate me, isolate me, and I'm on fire. And I, I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> That's how green I was. I thought he was Croft, made a doctor. Um, well, isolate the hot topic Yeah, and look, I, I was really green. And, but we all were as coaches. You know, in, in those days, Clarko had coached a little bit. But the Hawthorne coaching panel in those days was Clarko, Todd Vining, um, Todd had coached um, Moama, I think, um, in the, up in the country leagues, um, but hadn't done any further coaching that. Damien Hardwick was first year out of a premiership with Port Adelaide. Yeah. Um, and Ross Smith came on board. He'd done a little bit of coaching uh, up in Canberra and a few other places. But as a coaching group, we were fairly green. Uh, and I think that helped us because we found our own way and we were prepared to actually try different things. Um, and that, that, way, that way worked. <laughs> yeah, well, for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, let's just go back in time a little bit. I know you've done a lot of research. Um, I was trying to discuss sort of the historical influence of of, of coaching, but um, what can you tell um, our audience about um, Frederick Taylor and the uh, and mm -hmm. scientific management? So we're going to go back in time, but I love when you talk um, talk about this. Yeah, look, some of the audience may well have heard of Frederick Taylor, and they'll 
wonder what the hell is the link between him and sports coaching. And it, it's it's not that tenuous a link when you really think about it because Taylor was the guy who went into factories with his stopwatch and slide rule and, you know, um, you know tried to revolutionise revolutionise industry to save money basically and scientific management was his theory and he went in and worked out the best way to do a task. So he, um, you know, basically observed and um, optimised factory production, um, which was a real, you know, it's made a lot of people a lot of money. That approach and was a really highly, um, you know, um, valued theory and it still is today. Um, but what that did to sport is really interesting because there's a there's a, a follow-on from that is a lot of sport grew out of industrialised um, England, a lot of organised sport. If you think of around the, you know, the turn of the century and even earlier that the, you know, the great soccer clubs, you know, grew out of the industrial giant, you know, big towns like Arsenal was the Arsenal, the Woolwich Arsenal where they, they made guns and so on and, then, and you know, um, the great Manchester clubs grew out of those really industrial towns. And so there was a link between the factories um, and the sporting clubs. And they, they've actually, the, the factory workers played and there was a, um, an act of parliament which actually freed up Saturdays so that, you know, the population could be healthy and get out and um, take part in sporting endeavours and so on. And so what ended up happening was some of these principles of scientific management which were in place in the factories spilt over into coaching. Um, and spilled over and it was this idea of, you know, around the turn of the century in this, you know, scientific revolution and we could, we could, science was seen as this amazing thing that we could solve all these problems and, you know, we could make aeroplanes and, you know, um, x-rays and, um, you know, basically problems were being solved by scientific endeavour and there was this thought that we could solve everything with, you know, this positivistic um, uh, framework of, of science and so coaching followed that and we turned you know technology and cameras at sport um you know so taylorism flowed from the factory floors onto the coaching ovals and you can see it in the way you know we talk about you know drill um yeah. one of the things we call them sporting drills um which is very um you know it's this idea a drill is a repetitive task formed over and over and over again and and you try and master it and that has um you know it's derived from the military which is another big influence on on sport. When you think about it, if you look at some uh, old military training videos, they're basically drill. They're repeating the same thing over and over and over again, standing in lines, not unlike what you see um, or have historically seen in sporting ovals. And that's the link. There's this link between industry and military and sport, um, which is about, you know, identifying the best way to do it and repeat it over and over again. So, yeah, there is a link there for sure. Yeah, uh, that was going to be my next question around the, the military influence. Uh, I've, I've heard you talk about this a lot, the military influence on on, on coaching and, and that drill word. In, you, know, you sort of mentioned that, um, that games-based learning um, is something that you're really passionate about and have implemented over your time. How, how did that change come about, I suppose, fast-forwarding now from going into, you know, from a football perspective, I just think that, you know, lane work, is a drill. You, you clearly see players at the end of the line waiting their turn. They mark a ball, they kick it. Whereas, you know, over the last court 20 years, there's been a lot more sort of small sided games that are played and you're still executing the same skills. How did that sort of transition happen for you? And do you remember a time where it was um, quite progressive to do game-based skill-based learning stuff? Yeah, it was. Um, 
it was, I mean, it was, there were people who were doing it in the AFL when I started, definitely. It wasn't that yeah. um, people weren't doing game-based learning. Yeah. But there were still a lot of repetitive, you know, line-based drills and, you know, mastering that one one technique idea. Um, and I think we learnt through, you know, trial and error and positive fe- feedback that what we were doing was working. So once we started this idea of, um, you know, training that there wasn't one perfect way to treat us to perform a skill um, and that, you know, we needed the environmental stimuli to actually drive, you know, the decisions that drove the skill, yeah. then yeah. training games was a natural part of that process. And it's also a, um, another step in your thinking to think our process was um, people said that Hawthorne was a great kicking team. Um, you know, of those, that was one of the hallmarks of the Hawthorne era. And yes, we had good kicks and we trained them to be better kicks, but we didn't train them as individuals and we didn't, well, we did, but we, we also had this focus on, we were training the collective. And so my kicking, I could become a better kicker, but that wasn't useful unless James Podziadley was able to connect with that better kicking. Yeah. Kicking is not just about the kicker. It's about the understanding the receiver and making the kick easier. So we trained the whole system and we trained the connections between. And, yes, we had technically good kicks, but we had a plan that everyone understood and we had connection. Um, and so it's, again, it's, you've got to get past that, just that pure technical framework and, the, and that viewpoint that you've got to understand the system that you're training um, and, there's, and that games are a great way to bring that out because then you've got many decisions. There's been a, another shift in that thinking, though, I think, that, you know, we've gone past this idea of just, game space training um to now you know these ideas i think that you know this idea of tactical periodization is really really you know i'd encourage coaches to look into that um the idea of a game model that we base our coaching on moments in the game we try and grab a moment in the game and just design an activity or people still call them drills um to mimic that and and then we isolate that moment like it might be a transition from attack to defense or it might be a transition from winning a stoppage to inside 50 or it might be um you know kicking defense but you put the skill in context and you repeat that over and over and over again and that's where the repetition is important but it's not the repetition of the same thing it's the repetition it's it's repeating with differences it's you know um you know asking the same question but there's many different solutions so you just, you know, it's repeating without repetition in some ways. Um, and I think that's probably another step. When we think about just games-based, that's this idea of let's just play handball games and small-sided games. That's one way. The better way is to actually make it tactically appropriate to the game and design activities that are actually, um, yes, they've got game, they're a game and you play it, but they're repeating a tactical moment of the game. Uh, and there's the stuff to look out for if anyone wants to do some reading on that. Um, Mourinho, great soccer coach, his stuff on moments of the game. Um, you'll see some some really good stuff come out of the AFL shortly, I think, with their uh, junior curriculum, which is based around this idea of the moments of the game and principles of play. And that's stuff which I think is you know really progressive, uh, and I hope that will really help a lot of coaches if they get on board and, and try and learn that stuff. Thanks for listening, and we hope you're enjoying this episode of Max Mentors. We'll be right back after this short message from our partner. Hold your next team dinner at AFL Max. Whether you're after just a meal, team bonding, indoor training, or all of the above, we've got you covered. 
Book your team in at aflmax.com.au. When you talk about the connection piece and and the kicker and the receiver, have you got some examples? I just think in my time, that whole inside 50 kick, you know, people talk about that's probably the most important kick or one of the most important kicks in, in football. Do you remember doing or have you done any drills that have been quite successful in that space um, that you can sort of share with our community coaches out there? And I'll just premise, premise by saying, unfortunately for a lot of our Victorian um, coaches out there, they're obviously, you know, in a hard lockdown. So, you know, community football uh, isn't there, but a lot of our coaches still want to develop and are looking to next year, but other coaches around Australia are still able to train their um, their players, junior or senior. But can you think of a, a drill that just gives them something to focus on in that connection space? Yeah, I think when you're designing these sorts of drills, it's really important that the drill has some sort of tension in it. Um, yeah. that what do you mean by tension? Well, there, that there's choices that are made that it's not just, oh, we're going to go and we're going to kick the ball here. We're going to kick the ball there. So we might be kicking the ball inside 50 and we're trying to kick the ball inside 50 to a really dangerous position. But if that's well defended, then I've got to make a choice to kick it somewhere else. So it may be that it's still an okay choice to kick it inside 50 out wide, but there's a sort of, there's a gradient to that. And the wider I go, the less the opportunity to score. Um, and so it's becomes a, a, you know, it becomes a dumber decision to go wider. And so we, we tend to do, we design inside 50 kicking drills. So for example, where um, we just want to say, right, this is about hitting the lead up. We're going to hit lead ups. We're going to hit lead ups on this drill. And so it ends up getting to a situation where the lead up becomes that well defended because the defenders know that you're going to kick a lead up. Um, and so it, the, the drill becomes well defended and gets wider and wider and wider. And so you need a balance in those drills. And so you need to have a threat that actually says to the defender, hey, if you over defend this lead up, I'm going to kick it to the hotspot and yeah. you're going to pay the price. And that's what I mean by tension in drills that needs to be a balance that actually puts it in a game situation and says, well, what's the strategy here? What is, what is this situation asking of the kicker? And what is the kicker going to ask of the defence? And if the defence over-defends that, then they're going to pay for it somewhere else. So I think that sort of idea is a really important one to get right in the way you design drills. That The game has natural tension in it. Possession versus penetration. You know, I can choose to hold onto the ball by kicking it around in the back end, but I'm not going to score if I overdo that. I can do that, yeah. um, but it's a pretty boring way to play. I can just <laughs> keep long and long and direct, you know, all day. Um, you know, English soccer for a long time played direct football. They just kicked it in there, you know, and tried to win the knockdowns, and um, you know that was their strategy. And then along comes you know Spanish football and Barcelona, and they playing tick attacker and possession, and everyone thinks that possession's the answer but it wasn't possession that was the answer. It was the combinations of possession that got them into chance positions to score. Um, and that's the tension we need to have in our drills and activities. It's it's not all one way in a drill, and I think that's important. Yeah, that so, resonates to me um, going back to the, the couple of years that I did coach, and I had a player that I played with and then coached, and he was a fantastic long kick, and it was, it was basically around the way he was a really quick guy, and the way he ran, he always sort of looked up and could see – um, options ahead and we would see that he'd miss options in front of him that were like the 20 to 30 meter kicks so we did a lot of repetition work on that and then all of a sudden in the game what do you what do you think happens he misses yeah. the longer kicks and the longer yeah. options yeah so that's what you're sort of saying create that tension where there is multiple options there and let the player decide what is best yeah so um, in any in any there's choice everywhere um, yeah don't make the choice for the players keep the choice alive 
Yeah. And ask questions of the defence. And that's why you need defence in there because you've got to ask questions of them and see how they respond and then there's your decision. Yeah. 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 That's great. Hey, um, the evolution of coaching is a uh, over the last 50 to 60 years, just in purely AFL, um, has been almost a hot topic recently. I think, um, you know, you and I have chatted about this a little while. Probably 50, 60 years ago, there was one coach on the bench um, that was sort of coaching 18 players, hardly any rotations. It got to a point, um, and this is, you know, pre-COVID, so we can talk about what it's going to look like going forward, but there was almost a coach or an analyst in the box per player. Um, can you just sort of share your insight into sort of how he landed there? Obviously, pre post-COVID, it's going to look different, unfortunately, for a lot of people, but how do you think we sort of landed in that space? Yeah, I, I don't think it's that dissimilar to the discussion we were having earlier, Pods, around this idea of, of experts um, and our vision or our view of performances of, of being, you know, let's build this component of performance so we get an expert here and then we want to build so if we want to build fitness we get fitness experts we want to build skill we'll get skill experts we want to build we want psychology psychological strength we'll get a psychologist psychologist involved we need diet we need to get that right and so we started to build our programs out as the game became became more and more professional with more and more of these disciplines now the first one was conditioning phys ed as they were called back then and when the game went professional um you know they were on the spot and they were the, you know, really um, the domain that really established themselves. Um, and so our, we build our programs around fitness and we still do to a large extent. And we're sort of that, you know, that sort of dynamic is slightly changing now. But generally, you know, the physical gets prioritised um, and then we fit in the rest around it um, because the phys editors were the, you know, those guys who were on the block um, yep. and, and established their domain first. And then the next bits came as more and more money came into the game and we started putting more experts in. Uh, and, and this really reductionist idea that we could, we were going to build out this bit of a program by putting this person in and that would be right. Um, and what that misses is the interaction and the complexity of performance. Um, and I think that's the change that we're perhaps going to see now. Um, and, you know, that we need, we need to be leaner um, with our programs. We can't afford to necessarily have all these experts in all those domains. So we actually have to do it a different way. And it may be in the long term that that's actually a better way, um, that this idea of having generalists involved and people who can work across domains, um, so someone who can work on, on the, you know, on the gym floor and also on the, on the, out on the oval coaching. Um, you know, that we're doing this at the moment. You know, our, our sports psychologist is out there in the training track. Our list manager is umpiring our scratch matches and out there, you know, filling in as well. You know, there's much more of this cross-fertilisation across roles, which is probably really healthy for the, you know, for the whole program. Yeah, great. Let, let's just touch on that too because I think, you know, community coaches uh, have always been under-resourced. So you look at an AFL um, coaching guys versus what um, – I suppose community coaches has or grassroots coaches have and they're like, I can't compete with this. How am I going to teach all my players a game plan? I don't have the time and stuff. So this um, reduction in 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 headcount effect, effectively, and you you brought up a good point around um, having broader knowledge. You've got me you bought me a book a little while ago, six months ago, and it's up there. It's called Range. Yeah. Um, I haven't read it yet, mate. I've started it, but uh, I haven't finished it. But um, where do you see the the challenges moving forward for the AFL and also, but where do you see the benefits in this space? And I'm, 
I'm asking this question because I want our community coaches to hear that um, the opportunities in having you know a smaller team could could actually outweigh the the benefits having a bigger team. Yeah, it's. I think we we've come through this phase of, especially in the AFL, and it's it's no doubt it's crept down in the community footy because you hear the same jargon in community footy of, you know, we um, behind the goals vision. We've been through this chat a lot yep. you know, a lot of times that when behind the goals vision came into AFL footy, it changed the game dramatically because it meant that coaches could see every player on the ground, and then coaching, you know, it became more about this sort of technocratic idea of actually the coach having all the tactical answers and coaching players where to move. Where previously, um, you know, we had one camera, which is what the broadcast view, and a slightly wider one, which gave a few more players. But there was a lot the coach didn't see and had to rely on memory of, you know, how the game played out um, and didn't have videotape of. You know, they couldn't see the forwards when the ball was up the other end and vice versa. Um, When behind the goals vision came in, that changed. And so coaching became even more technologically based and you would have sat through them yourself as a player the monday review sessions which you're sitting there watching behind the goals vision just hope, hoping you know hoping the coach doesn't pick you out <laughs> you know and so it became coaching became a really really directive process um and it became something that the coach could explain and so the knowledge and the game expertise became so much based in the coach and and the coach's perspective and less of the player, um, perhaps now that'll budge a little bit, and that we don't have as much resource to actually, um, you know, distribute to those processes. It's a little bit. It's going to be hard to unscramble the egg. But if the if programs are smaller, then the coaches are going to have to focus on what they can. Um, and there's also been a bit of a shift, and some of this has been, you know by the successful clubs of the last few years, like Richmond have, you know, gone down this really humanistic path of coaching, you know, that it's really about fun and connection and really prioritising that. And, you know, the relationship side of it's become, you know, the ultimate. And so perhaps that, you know, this technocratic stuff slightly shifting and now with what's happened with COVID that that's shifting us a little bit further and we're going to maybe realise that we don't have to have all the answers as a coach. We have to create this environment um, which, you know, supports itself um, and empowers players to make decisions rather than the coach telling all the time. And I think that's really quite healthy. Yeah, I, I agree with you, mate. I think I, I put my players hat on uh, and obviously I'm not involved in, in AFL football at the moment, but I, I think that what we'll find is that players will need to actually own their own career a lot more. So, you know, not being told where to stand, what to do by you know, or what to eat, et cetera, all the time. They're going to, you know, fail, make mistakes and learn for themselves. And I think that's actually going to potentially make better players, make better decision makers, make better people off the field, you know, help players transition even out of football and, and um, you know, into the, we'll call it the real world, but, you know, into other jobs. I think that um, having to actually fend for themselves a little bit um, might might actually help them. Is, uh, is is the way I sort of look at it as well. Yeah, and I think um, that's the way I think too, mate. It's going to be really interesting, um, you know, whether that actually happens or not. Um, we take this idea that, you know, things are a bit hard to predict as well. Um, yeah, yeah. We've got to see what happens and uh, see what emerges from this sort of chaotic situation, I suppose. So it's, um, we, can, we can have ideas, but it'll be really interesting to see where it goes. 
Yeah. Hey, um, I just want to, thanks for sharing that, mate. I just want to talk on, talk about the, um, the six coaching competencies. Now, um, I know in your time at the AFL, you did a lot of work uh, on this and, and it has um, actually stemmed from the International Council of Coaching Excellence. But I just want to, uh, can you just talk to that journey that you sort of went on when you, when you got the role at the AFL um, and sort of, and for those of you that um, don't know the, the coaching competencies, it's on the Coach AFL website, so jump on and have a look. But most of you have done level one and two and, and, and even three as well, but it's all throughout there. But can you just talk to me about that journey and how you sort of adapted that for the AFL? Yeah. Well, some of that sort of the heavy lifting was done prior to me getting there with, with some of that work. Um, yeah. With the level four program, Michael Poulton did a lot of work there in setting that up. Um, and, you know, basing that around the ICC competency framework, which um, I think is now six competencies. There were five, but, you know, they were around, you know, um, setting a vision, um, you know, creating the environment, building relationships, sort of game day coaching, um, and then the reflective learning. Yeah. And so I think the, the game day one's been split into... Um, Two, yeah. Two now yeah. is really react to the field and um, plan training or something like that. Yeah, yeah. that sort of course, yeah. Yeah, and I think when we think of coaching, we a lot of us go there, and we think that coaching is around that that technical stuff. Yeah. But what we wanted to capture with that framework was that there's so much more to it than that. That yes, that's part of coaching and that's important. Um, but if you can't set a vision as a coach, if you can't say this is where we're going. And, and lead your team, your club down that direction, then you're probably going to struggle to get long-term enduring success, um, however you define success. Um, you know, if you can't build relationships and don't understand the importance of build, building relationships, then you're probably going to fundamentally have a problem as a coach as well. So we wanted to, you know, understand the breadth of coaching and at that stage, and it probably still is, that was, you know, um, world's best practice, that model. I don't think there's one that's better than that in terms of capturing the, the breadth of coaching. And so what we wanted to do was base all of our coach education in the AFL around best practice modelling, basically. So that was the decision-making, um, which I said had already been started. And um, what I tried to do and what Julia Lawrence is doing now um, was really build that out across all the levels of coach education. Um, and I think it's a really a good process. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic framework and I know a lot of clubs have actually used it when it, when it comes to hiring, whether it's an assistant coach or, or senior coaches too. So mm -hmm. um, what on your work there. In terms of our community coaches, I mean, um, they're always, um, time is always scarce, I suppose, but um, to, to try and nail all, all six, uh, and it's a journey that they're all on as well, but if there's one area that um, you think that, is going to give them the best return on investment um, and think about the stuff that we're going through now, in particular in Victoria, what what would be one piece of advice under that sort of framework that you'd sort of recommend to spend time on? Um, I think it's probably context dependent, mate. Um, I think having a sense of, of a shared journey that you're on is really important. Yeah. And creating that sense of purpose. Yeah. Uh, and that's not... Um, you know, limited to sport. I think if you read a lot of leadership stuff now, it's, you know, the Simon Sinek stuff, it starts with why, you know, the purpose stuff that, and, you know, it's definitely, that's a lot of our, you know, the, having been at St Kilda for, you know, six or seven months, that's what we've spent a lot of time on. 
is trying to understand who we are and, and you know what what our unique um, purpose is, I suppose, and where we're going and how we're going to get there. And without that, um, a lot of a lot of what you a lot of the content of your program lacks direction. So I think getting that right is really fundamental. And that's not something you can come into a club as a coach and say necessarily we're going to do this. I think you've got to understand the culture of the place that's already existing, whether that be good or bad. There's going to be some elements of it that you want to, um, you know, elevate and there's going to be some, some other elements of it you want to change. You've got to understand the people. You've got to understand the history. You've got to understand who you have there, um, players, staff, um, community members around you, uh, and build it with them. And I think that's probably the the most important element of any club is that sense of shared direction uh, and having all the people aligned and pulling in the right direction. Um, so I'd say get that right and a lot of other stuff that will flow from that. Great, mate. Thanks. And I, the Simon Sinek stuff, is a, he's just got a, a, a book out, probably came out about a year ago called The Infinite Game. Yeah. Um, and um, I think you and I have talked about this, but you talked about a couple of things there and even uh, myself running a business now, and there's probably a lot of people here that do run businesses or, or manage teams, but he talks about three key things that you, you need to do as a leader or as an entrepreneur or as a CEO, but it's about advancing your purpose. How do you actually advance that? So what operations do you do to do that? Number two is look after people. And number three is in business is make a profit. But in sport, if you can advance your purpose and make sure that's clear and look after people, I reckon you're going you're gonna to probably make a profit and, and win some games, um, aren't you? So, yeah, I love the stuff that Simon Sonic yeah. has. Hey, um, mate, we've only got about 10 minutes, less than 10 minutes to, to go, and I want to get to the quick six in a sec. But I do want to just touch on um, golf with you because uh, I have played uh, golf multiple times with you, and I think the majority of the time you've taken my money. Um, <laughs> and I've, I've, I think oh, people that <laughs> I think you have, mate. But um, obviously, I've, I've missed playing with you over this, this last period. But um, is there anything that you sort of learned from golf that you've applied to, to coaching um, in, in your time? Uh, yeah, I think there's there's a few things. I think um, you know, performance mindset um, in golf is really interesting. Um, and, you know, we can learn a lot from that around routines. Uh, goal kicking is the obvious one. I think you can yeah. go there straight away. Um, you know, golfers have pre-shot routines and they live and die by pre-shot routines um, that, you know, their visualisation skills. And we work with our players on understanding, you know, routine. But the, a really simple one you can take from golf um, is just in, in terms of goal kicking is picking a small target. Uh, yeah. and really refining your purpose about what you're trying to do. Like a lot of us when we get in front of us, a, 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 you know, goal face, is we see this goal face and we think, oh, I've got to kick it between those posts. And so mentally what we see is this big space um, and we think I've got to kick it between there. Whereas the flip side of that is not to be scared by kicking it between that space. It's to actually embrace the challenge of being as accurate as you can. Um, and I did a lot of work with with various players over the time. Um, can you on this process. I, I know, can you just talk about the uh, your Cyril Rioli story around that space? I don't I don't, yeah, I know yeah. you don't want to gloat, but you did make him number one goal kicker in the AFL for a period of time. But can you talk about the work you did with him? Yeah, and again, that's um, you know it's about making the putting the player at the center of the process. Um, and Cyril was having a bit of a, a run of outs with his goal kicking and had lost his confidence. Um, and so the conversation I had with Cyril was along those lines. It's, it was, my, you know, if you, th- if you take the idea that performance equals ability, 
minus interference. Cyril was this ultimate performer in terms of the ability side of it from a goal kick. He's a beautiful kick of the football. Sublime touch and um, beautiful kick. The interference piece was the problem with him. So we didn't we didn't need to increase his ability, and we probably couldn't increase his ability. All we had to do was remove the interference somehow. And so it was around mindset, and it was around Cyril. So when you're kicking the goals, forget about the goal face. Your 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 conversation with yourself here is not can I kick a goal? It's how good can I get at kicking accurately? And so we did a pretty simple thing. We got him kicking from the top of the goal square at a little plastic target, which was about, you know, a circle about that big. And you'll see them on many grounds up behind the goals. Um, and he just started kicking at that from 10 metres out until he could hit it consistently. Uh, and then he came to me and he said, Rathi, it's too big. Cut a hole. So I had to cut a hole in the middle of this circle. And he was then, you know, his target, his challenge was to kick it into that hole. Um, and we didn't change anything technically with his kick. We didn't change his routine except for we spent some time looking at that target and being really defined about what he was trying to do and, and set on that. Um, and he did. He became the best kick in the AFL um, that year on the back of just doing that, just kicking from the top of the goal square at that target. And, you know, again, it's, it's around mindset and focus and it is so powerful, that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well done, mate. I love those uh, love those sort of personal stories. Hey, um, I want to wrap this up, but I just want to get to a couple of the questions potentially, Arthur. You might um, see these as well in the, in the Q um, and A. And your your mate Craig Simpson. Yes, it is rusty. Just uh, quietly. <laughs> you know, you know. How are you, mate? <laughs> there you go. Hey, um, one here from Mark. I can tell some stories about him. He's a good golfer too, Pods. <laughs> Maybe for another time. Max Mentor is two two point with Rathi. <laughs> Hey, um, any tips about teaching uh, young players the art of dropping the ball, um, you know, to their foot in a kick? Yeah, um, I think one of the challenges a lot of kids have is the size of the footy to start with, um, and we've got to yeah. we've got to match the size of the footy to their you know their maturation or the growth of their size. And we're seeing this in a lot of sports now. A lot of sports are shifting towards age scaled equipment. Um, tennis is shifting towards smaller courts, smaller rackets, you know, balls that are a little bit slower. Um, and footy's got to do the same. So we've got to have appropriately sized footballs for our kids. And um, many, many of us are doing this with Auskip. Um, but the other part of it is understanding that and getting away from this idea that we have to um, control the ball all the way from hand to foot. That can be quite, uh, it seems quite strange, but that can be quite damaging to to kicking, we've got to release the footy to kick it. And the skill in kicking is being able to release the ball from hand to foot and control it. Um, you know, that ball drop, it's got to drop from hand to foot. And if you want to kick the ball distance, then there is a reasonable distance from hand to foot. I was talking about Didac earlier, um, and there's some great footage of Didac kicking long kicks. And when he re- releases a ball for a long kick, the ball is almost at shoulder level. But what he could do is he can control the ball from hand to foot. And that's a challenge for kids. So getting them to actually be psychologically safe with releasing the ball from hand to foot is part of that process. So you do that by taking away the result. Um, get them to try it with a round ball where there's, you know, the oval ball's harder to hit because you've got to get it oriented the right way. You've got to free them up a little bit sometimes to actually get them to take that next step. So kicking a round ball, even a tennis ball, um, and not worrying about where it goes, getting them to actually toss the ball up in the air a little bit sounds a bit strange, but getting them to actually break out of this habit of, actually, of I've got to put it right on my foot because that 
is difficult to do um, when you're kicking along and it really can limit them. So psychological safety in skill is a really important part of it. Variability is really important. So getting them to try a whole range of different kicks and getting to understand that adapting the ball between hand and foot is where, you know, we talk about skill and variability. That, that, that's where it is and that's a skill in kicking. Yeah, great. I think um, the other thing that sometimes missed is everyone's after the perfect ball drop, but you look at some of the great players in our time, and I remember um, playing, fortunately playing with them, sometimes it's not the most perfect ball drop, but their ability to adapt their foot to a different shape of the ball is also incredible. So, you know, it's not about the perfect ball drop because sometimes under pressure, you're just going to have to, you know, throw the ball down on your boot and hit the outside of it for a certain kick. And so it's not just all all ball drop as well, isn't it? No, and I think, you know, that was one of the lessons that I learned from Sam Mitchell. And I think that's, you know, you can learn from your players so much by observing them and talking to them. And Mitch um, went on this journey with his kicking where he just started to explore more and more stuff to the extent was he would deliberately release the ball the wrong way from his hand to foot yeah. to try and put some, you know, some chaos in it and then try and adapt his foot and make the kick work. And yeah. that was his greatest strength as a kick was the, his ability to adapt. Um, you know, it wasn't a long kick, but it was an amazingly adaptable kick. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, one more question from the uh, uh, from the audience because we do have to run. You've got to get to, to dinner, mate, and so do I, and, and I get hungry and grumpy pretty quickly. So um, can you envision, just a good question, um, any sort of code-hopping coaches in the future? Um, you know, you talked about your story about being a biomechanic uh, biomechanics expert effectively and then jumping into coaching. Do you ever see that that's a possibility? Yeah, I reckon, you know, possibly, mate. Um, you know, there was some talk some years ago of, you know, Joyce Brown, who was a famous netball coach, actually Fraser Brown's mum, she coached Australia. And, yeah. and she probably could have been an AFL coach. Lisa Alexander's, you know, often, you know, been referenced in those terms as well. You know, there's a lot of commonalities between these invasion sports um, that we can borrow from each other. So, you know, AFL coaches talk to coaches from other sports all the time. Yeah, um, and really, a lot of these these core coaching competencies, you know, if you use that ICC framework, the technical tactical stuff is only one part of it, and at the elite level, it's obviously a very important part of it. But you know, I could see us definitely getting some assistant coaches um, from other sports and, and learning for them from them. There was a really good article online um, I noticed today around this idea of donor sports that you know we try other sports because they can actually. Um, yeah. help us develop components of our sport. So they're talking about, you know, um, if you want to develop someone's ability to, you know, to be agile and cut, then go and try some of this parkour, you know, where kids are jumping because there's some, some yeah. components of that. The movement qualities are transferable. Um, there's obviously a lot of, you know, passing games. There's a lot of stuff that we can pick up from each other in that. So perhaps the question is um, what coaches can borrow from each sport as well as as coaches code hopping. I think they're, it parts of the same question. Yeah. Great. Hey, um, the quick six, we finish off with this um, each time we do one of these. Uh, let's get started, mate. And um, what's one book that you can recommend our coaches to read? I know you're a big reader. Um, um, what's a good book? I looked at that last Simon Sinek one that you mentioned is really good. Um, yeah, Infinite Game. Infinite Game, that's a good one. Um, what else have I read? 
look, there's, uh, there's a lot, so much stuff online, mate. I'm, I'm probably more digesting a lot of online stuff rather than books at the moment. There's a really good um, website I came across today, um, which is called Samuel Holmshaw. So S A M U E L Holmshaw H O L M S H A W Football Coach wordpress.com and that one's got some great coaching information on it. it's a soccer coach but some of some of his ideas are fantastic so have a look at that one I recommend right. that one yeah well uh listen to the podcast and you'll get that if you if you missed it tonight i um one short youtube or ted talk that um you watched recently oh, i've got to mention the super chicken one pods <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to explain that to? Yeah, so th- if you Google super chickens on YouTube, you'll find um, <laughs> you'll find a, a video which is um, it's really good actually. It's about it's a, a lady um, researcher talking about this idea of um, you know the importance of connectedness and the glue as opposed to the you know the superstar um, athletes yeah. or superstar people in our organisation. Uh, she yeah. tells this story. I won't give it all away, but she tells a story about an experiment they did where they um, got a group of you know, these super high-producing chickens who produced high-yield eggs, put them in one group and then got a group of just regular chickens um, and created another group out of them. Um, and, yeah, watch the YouTube. It's fascinating. The results I, of the experience tell you a lot. I showed that to my team at AFL Max, the staff, um, a couple of months ago and um, pre-COVID, and they were like, what are you doing? What, you know, <laughs> what, what is this? But anyway, go out and have a look at it. It's um. Uh, a po- yeah, it's a good one. It's uh, question three: a podcast that you listen to or that you enjoy. Um, yeah, so I'll write one down. The Player Development Project has some good stuff on it. Um, what's the other one? I did write one down before. Uh, the Talent Equation. That's got some talent good equation. stuff on it. Yeah. Yep. I heard that. Great. Um, question four, mate. What's one coaching point? I, I talk about ground balls every week, but uh, what's one coaching point that? Um, you teach your coaches teach around ground balls. Uh, and this is one that Rats is really super strong on with ground balls. And um, as a as a fundamental, if you haven't got dirt underneath your fingernails, you're not yep. doing it right as a starting point. You got to get yep. you got to get down there. The other one Rats talks about really um, passionately with this is this idea of putting your turtle shell on, and actually you know rounding your shoulders and actually getting down there and protecting yourself and protecting your head with your shoulders and yep. you know getting a bit hunched and getting over the ball um, and, and your posture is really important in allowing you to do that so you can wear some hits and actually ride the bump a little bit. Yeah, great. Love that one. Turtle shell. Um, we, talk, we talked about games and I said, well, what's one game you've played or play with players and why? Um, yeah, I tend to play a lot of games in training that are not necessarily footy. Yeah. Um, we might play them with a footy, um, but they're not the AFL game, but I'll have a principle in them. So one we, we do is we'll do handball games where, um, you know, you've got, uh, you might have multiple goals. So you're trying to create, again, some tension um, oh, yeah. in, in yep. the defence. Um, you might have, you know, floaters on the on the wings. So you've got this idea of, yes, you want to, you want to go that way, but if you can't go that way, how do you use the shape around you to actually create a new opportunity. So you can always bail out and go backwards to a spare player behind you or spare players that are undefended on the side. So small-sided handball games with three players in different locations and different goals. Do a lot of that, a lot of that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, great. One we did a lot of at Hawthorne was what we called soccer surge, where you're not allowed to pick the ball up with your hands when you're facing your goal. 
Okay, so you've got to kick the yep. ball up off the ground if you're facing your goal. So yep. you're promoting that idea of just getting the ball moving your way. Yep. Um, if you're facing away from goal, you can pick it up and handball it to someone who's facing goal, but they've got to kick it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really practising those wet weather fundamentals and, and surging yeah. the ball. That's a good one. Um, that's interesting because you look at the way Richmond have been playing the last couple of years with Damien Hardwick. I reckon yeah. he's definitely, um, definitely taking that soccer surge mentality um, going forward. And, mate, last question in the quick six, uh, not so quick tonight, probably my fault, but uh, what's your most important value? Mm-hmm. It's a good one, Pods. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can say one. One. I think um, I really value um, inquisitiveness and knowledge and learning and creativity and, you know, that's something that I, I, I think I hold pretty dear. Um, just, you know, n- never standing still in the sense of thinking um, you have all the answers in a certain domain, keep searching because I know that, you know, I read something about it actually today. I was reading, reading a book and I read this great, great quote about coaching. It says, do you have 20 years coaching experience or have you had the same year 20 times over? Um, and I think that's a really good way of, of thinking about it, that, you know, you can coach for a long time and gain wisdom and evolve, or you can just stay the same. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the first way is a lot better because you can always improve and you should always be trying different things. And I think that's a good little framework. Yeah, mate. Um, well, thanks so much for uh, for being a part of tonight. And if there's one way to describe you, it is actually um, your ability to evolve and, and look about how you, um, you know, I suppose, are creative and, and how you want to always get better and how inquisitive you are in, in coaching, but also when it came to your work at the AFL, and I'm sure you're doing the same thing at the Saints now. So, mate, um, the Saints are in good hands. We can clearly see that. And, and some of the footy that you guys are playing is really exciting to watch, mate. So thanks for being a part of tonight. And congratulations on a, uh, a fantastic career so far in, in coaching. Thanks, mate. Great to chat. And I hope that's been useful for some of you guys. Okay. Whoa, what a lot to take in. Now, I'm going to do my top three takeouts, but... Uh, I'm really going to struggle with that one. I'm going to have to do a top 30, I reckon, potentially. As you heard, that was a, a webinar we did in mid-June. If you want to go on our website and have a look at where future webinars are at and what's coming up, please do so, aflmax.com.au. But now, let's get to my top three takeouts. Takeout number one, I'm not the expert. Rathi talked about his early days in coaching and his time at Hawthorne, how he tried to apply the expert model and he found it didn't really work. He had to park his scientific background to work with individuals and even their different movement patterns as an example when it came to kicking technique. He discovered that there wasn't one perfect way of executing a skill and that knowing what you don't know is as important as what you do know. Fantastic insight to a guy that just continually has a growth mindset on how to get better. Takeout number two, coaching and parenting are not too dissimilar. Rathi talked about the importance of building relationships and how they're very, very similar in both. Rathi believes that coaching starts here. Sometimes as a coach and a parent, you need to be firm, but sometimes you need to cuddle. And he feels that with the next generation of athletes and kids coming through, we're sort of trending more and more that way. Takeout number three, and one of my personal favorites, Google super chickens. You won't regret it. Rathi mentioned this clip at a high level, but the importance of connectiveness and glue versus the superstar chicken. Margaret Heffernan is the presenter, so Google it, watch it, and it really gives you an insight into what type of culture we'd like to build, and that working together is so much more important than having one superstar player or athlete 
or employee. Now that wraps up episode four of Max Mentors. I mean, I've tried to do a top three takeouts, but I could easily have done 30, as I said. Uh, a big thanks to David Rath for sharing his experiences and his knowledge, and a big thank you for you listening. As I said earlier, jump on our website to see when we're running our next live Max Mentors event. But until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.